Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data, unlimited talk and text, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone and any Mint Mobile plan and bring your own phone number. Along with your existing contacts, ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. My team here, they're on Mint Mobile, and they like it. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proves to have excellent coverage with no-drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. To get this new customer offer and the new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash literally. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Jan, who are you listening to in the background? Who is playing? That was Dire Straits. Nothing wrong with them. One of my favorites. I listen to them all the time. I love that guitar playing. So good. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe. It is literally, I'm, look, I'm excited to do the show every time I do the show, but there every once in a while, I'm super duper, ooper excited. And today's one of those days. Jan Wenner is with us. He created the Rolling Stone magazine. Um, he has been at the table for every cultural moment from probably 1968 until today. He's a wonderful writer. He's written a new book, Like a Rolling Stone, which is out right now. It's fantastic. And he's just lived an amazing, amazing life. You know, knows where everybody is buried. This is going to be a good one. Jan Winner. I was saying to my, my sons, I was like, you have to understand, Jan is the Steve Jobs of entertainment media. I think it's a fair, can you accept that compliment? I, of course I can accept that. <laughs> yeah, very much so. It's interesting, you know, in meeting and talking to Steve over the years, how we shared such early paths uh, with uh, both taking drugs and our obsession with Bob Dylan, you know, and trying to make sense of all that. I mean, he was obsessed with that. I, it's so funny. I, I, um, I have a longtime driver who drives me into to LA. I go in all the time. It's a long drive. And whenever Dylan comes on, I turn it up. 
my driver's like 27. He goes, I don't understand Bob Dylan. That's the worst voice I've ever heard. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's, but do you think people today, my driver notwithstanding, have the same appreciation for Dylan that that we do having, you know. I know that my son, who's 32, absolutely does. Now he's a musician as well as other things. But I mean, he he reveres it. He can he can he knows the lyrics better than I do. Mm-hmm. And um, so I imagine it certainly is possible. I mean, for people musical. I mean, for example, I think most people who don't know Bob's stuff. Initial reaction would be, oh, what a lousy voice. It's so terrible. How can you listen to it? It's so creepy. But on the other hand, the truth of the matter is, it's about the most distinct, emotive voice of our time, more so than almost anybody else. And it's such a professional with the way he said, I mean, he's such a good singer. You know, he's he's my favorite of all the rock lists. And who do you think is the best American songwriter of all time? Is it, is it, is it Bob? I don't know about all time. And Francis Scott Key and... But I mean, but look, wait, 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 in all fairness, it's all very, it's it's all very smart to say Francis Scott Key, Jan. Jan, the thing of it is, it's very smart to Francis Scott Key, is my Lauren impersonation, in case you didn't know. Um, But people only know him from from the Star Spangled Banner. The kids don't know him. Um, (laughs) It's pretty good, good. right? Uh, Yeah. It's Dylan. Dylan. Come on, it's Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the combination of his musical gifts and his, his literary poetic gifts is stunning. And then, of course, he's, he's prolific. I mean, curly prolific, but it's blazing writing. He's written, and that's why he won the Nobel Prize for writing. Um, I'm going to throw Paul Simon in there. Paul's a, uh, they, they, they've tracked each other and, and, and had an odd rivalry. Mm. Um, and I think Paul's always felt diminished in the response he's gotten in, in his critical reception because always there was Bob with something more dazzling, something more profound, something with greater meaning on stuff. But I, I, Paul's one of the great American songwriters, for sure. His stuff is so beautiful. For sure, right? Uh, so powerful, just great. I, I I love his stuff. I don't necessarily care for him. And as I wrote in my book, I said I was not going to let him ruin his songs for me. No, you're, you're very funny. By the way, the book is amazing. Your book is everything. It's everything you want it to be. Do, do you know what I mean? It's It's every single thing you want it to be. It's a tricky thing. I, and having written two books myself, it's like people want to know the inside stuff and the difference between the inside stuff and the dirt slash gut. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, it, it you, you hit the bullseye so perfectly because like you're talking about Paul Simon. I want to know, was he an asshole or wasn't he? The answer is from you. He's, eh, he's a little prickly. Yeah. So it's not, it's it's so anyway by the way so read the book um like a rolling stone it's out now it's amazing if you like well i think music even a little bit it's it's amazing uh i think the thing is that uh i was present at so many key moments and interesting places and great concerts and unusual scenes and just remarkable stuff i mean it was a it was absolutely a story worth told telling and you want to bring people into the inside of the situation be there at the scene much like Rolling Stone did with all of his pieces and all his writers. We were the ones that always bring you there. You would go hang out with the subject, the article, the music or the group for five days and come back. But you can't, you don't want to tell, you want to tell it's true and interesting and colorful and positive story. You don't want to dish dirt no. or unpleasant gossip. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make you as a reader feel good. So it doesn't make the subject feel good. And it doesn't, you don't really learn much from it. 
You know, you if, if you want to learn something about what I'm writing, writing about, you want to learn stuff that is not not strictly positive, but is truthful without, yeah, I don't know, be hurting people. I there's something just you don't need that that prurient stuff. You know, you don't really ha- like a prurient story in the end. That that's you know? that's right, and yet. You don't shy away from, it's not just a rah-rah, you know, everybody's great. Everybody was fabulous. And like, and, and I'm, so I want to circle back to Paul because I'm obsessed with Paul Simon and, and Paul in particular, but also Simon and Garfunkel and the Central Park concert that Lauren produced. I was there. Was it as, I mean, it's just an amazing album. Yeah. Amazing. And, and all I want to ask you this, there's so much to talk about. The, is the 25th Rock and Roll Hall of Fame HBO special. Um, and you write about uh-huh. it amazingly when, when they, Simon and Garfunkel came out, I heard that Artie had a horrible cold and asked to re-record all of the vocals. Is that true? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't recall anything about him asking to re-record all the vocals, but it sounds just like Artie. Okay. After their segment is over and I describe listening to it and seeing the roof lift off of Madison Square Garden thinking I've just heard the most magical, beautiful version of Bridge Over Trouble Water that I've ever heard in my yeah. life. And now Artie has lost some of the top range of his voice. This is true. And he couldn't reach a couple of high notes. But the setting, the musicianship, Paul, Artie, the people who are listening, the peer group of, 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 of all the great artists of our time, listening, it w- was one of the most magnificent versions. I'm sorry. For sure. But Artie comes off and the first thing he says is, oh, that was terrible. You know, it's like, oh, I can't believe this or that. I I just threw up my hands. I already have known well for a long time. I said, I, Artie, I just can't at this point help you anymore. You know, <laughs> it, I, I took this out of the book. But before we did the show, he calls me up a couple about a week ago. He says, look, could you get Paul to give me an extra verse and bridge over troubled water? I said, all right, you know, says, this is. This is beyond me. You you talk to Paul. Wait, but me write him an extra Paul, verse or let him sing an extra? No, let him sing the extra verse because our Paul had told me some time ago. He says the worst mistake he ever made in his life was letting Artie sing that song. Amazing. So I'm saying to myself, these guys, this oh, get me out. This is a relationship you don't want to be in the middle of. But I got stuck in the middle of it for years and years and years for some various odd reasons. But that's them, nonetheless. The music they made together is unbelievable. I didn't realize one of my favorite songs, Only Living Boy in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And when I do my one-man show, I close with that song, that, that song plays. I didn't realize it was really written about Artie going away to make the movies. Um, yeah. Artie deserted him. Artie That's right. And didn't tell him. Artie deserted him. Leaving. Artie started it. Um, let me ask you this. So you and you're very good friends with my beloved Michael Douglas, who... Mm-hmm. Um, we did behind the candelabra together and we're neighbors again in Montecito. He's back. He's mm-hmm. back. He's yeah. got the, um, his um, dad's old house in Montecito. Yeah. I can only imagine what the two of you in, in San Francisco in what's 70, yeah, like five, 70, 72, early, early, yeah. whatever. 72. Mid seventies. Mid It must've yeah. been. Unbelievable. But we were we were having fun. We we clicked the minute we met each other. I mean, it was just like chemical there, you know, it's just we were brothers. And um 
for us, I think we both felt kind of isolated by that point in San Francisco. Uh, Michael, of course, was there. He had never lived there, you know, and he didn't know anybody. And furthermore, the filming of the show was kind of looked down on in San Francisco. And people, you know, were kind of snobby to people from L.A. and snobby about uh, exploitation TV. And I, by that time, had become a little estranged from San Francisco myself because I was going back and forth to New York and making a new new life and kind of hitting it, starting to hit the journalistic big, big time, you know, far away from the San Francisco scene. Yeah. And um, so we just kind of found each other to be soulmates and kind of like friends, you know, at a place where we were all, where we were kind of alone and isolated. Was Coppola and Lucas on the scene in San Francisco then? They were there. They were there then. And so was Bill Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh so there was some heavy, heavyweight people around at the time. But you'd already be- begun your life in, in New York at that point. Well, I was going back and forth New York to San Francisco and had half half of Rolling Stone was ended up in New York and half in San Francisco. And I finally had to bring them both together. There'll never be another Rolling Stone, right? Never. The, the, in the, the landscape has changed. The world has changed. That, that, that place that, that that magazine occupied in the culture will never be replaced, correct? I don't think so. I, I don't see how it could be possible. Is rock and roll dead? I don't think it's dead. Uh, I think it's changed rather substantially, as it should. Uh, what we now see is popular music, or what's what's selling. Yes, more is very much pop and hip hop, and kind of a combination of the two. And it's not to my taste, but it is selling. It is vital to a to its audience. You know, important uh, uh, to its constituencies and carries messages and meaning, ideas. You know, like, you know, all, all the conventional stuff, it doesn't come along at a time where it's got as much urgency as the rock and roll of my youth had when really rock and roll at that time was the only way young people could talk to each other, express their concerns about the society, you know, or the way they the human justice in the world and uh, exchange notions, philosophies of living That's interesting. And, and become a community because now that ability to communicate with each other, young people is everywhere through the internet, through all kinds of medium and rock and roll music you can read about and all the newspapers and on TV all the time in the films. And so, on. so it's not as important, singularly important a channel as it was in my time. So in other words, if Twitter had been around during Kent state, Neil Young would write a tweet about it instead of writing Ohio. That is pretty, I mean, yes, figuratively, that's that's correct. I mean, really, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if people felt outraged and wanted to communicate about there'd be many other places for them to do it. Then, and also because you had somebody great like Neil Young, but then the song was the most powerful way of getting at it. And it Ken, Ken State in 70, and then nearly a decade before, Stephen Still singing For What It's Worth about the riots on Sunset Strip. Same communication about what's going on in society among young people, you know, and all of Bob Dylan's confrontations is confronting the hypocrisy of the society we were about to walk into as adults. Today, you know, it, that that kind of anger and expression can go many, many places. You've helped me sort of understand why the music of today feel, and I wasn't around then, obviously, feels very much like what I'm assuming the music of the pre-Elvis 50s was. It's producer oriented singer oriented it's not it's not writer oriented message oriented at all and there there 
there are some amazing um, singer-songwriters, amazing today. But but when we grew up, everybody everybody wrote what they sang for the most part. Everybody. Let let me take that big a little little back further than you. When you start with jazz mm-hmm. and the blues and music of black people, black people, it was full of protest, full of anger, full of really deep stuff. Yeah. It was a music of, of writer's suffering came out of that experience. The music of say the third and then the jazz pickup in the music of the thirties, forties, fifties, it was, it was, it was music made by professionals in each of their field. I mean, songwriters were supposed to write songs with great melodies and popular melodies to it. And then you had arrangers who were arranging and so, and big orchestras and instrumentalists. And then he picked singers, not for their identity, but their, their quality of voice come Elvis in the sixties, you start, uh, the artists become more, more full scale. They not only sing their own, they sing the material, it's their own material they're singing. They play it themselves, you know, and they usually produce it themselves. So it's kind of real, it's more DIY music mm-hmm. than it was the music of the 50s, where you had big Nelson Riddle and his orchestra and Sinatra in front of it. It made it more real, it made it more personal and from the street, from average people's feelings, from kids, than the pros at the, you know, Capitol Records studio. And thus it made it more really kind of personal and powerful for people. I mean, Fly Me to the Moon is nice. It's a great song. It's great. He said, but it's not nearly as strong as, you know, uh, Four Dead in Ohio or something like that. Yeah, or, or hearing Joni Mitchell. Where else can you go surfing and skiing? in the same day, or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky, same day, or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer, California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. I, look, I love California, um, and I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3. 
at harrys.com slash rob. That's harrys.com slash rob for a $3 trial set. Shopping for humans is hard. Shopping for your dog is easy. Thanks to Bark. Every month, we deliver toys and treats just for your pup. They deserve to be spoiled every month. At Bark, we send your dog a whole collection of toys and treats made just for them every single month. Whether it's our fun plush toys or our ultra-tough toys from Super Chewer, we give your dog exactly what they want. And for a limited time, we will double your first box for free. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com Rob. BarkBox is so convenient and delivers straight to your door and more importantly, right to your dog. I can't wait to try out BarkBox. My dogs need their toys, particularly the chewable toys. Sign up now at BarkBox.com Rob for an exclusive offer. This ad is now over. Let's get back to petting our dogs. You must have been a Joni fan, yes? Huge fan, huge fan. Huge. She wrote that great song, California, which I cherish, and when she's got the line, went, I was in Spain, went down a red dirt road, all the pretty people there were reading Rolling Stone, reading Vogue. Of course. You must have been, you must have been beyond belief. I forgot about that. Of course, that lyric's in, the, in there. It's it's so beautiful. It's and it makes me feel so good. And it's and I was there then. Uh, and there's I read somewhere that she she did that to the house I had there, but I think it's probably not true. But it captures a moment. You know, she's how long can you sit in the sun and let your skin turn brown, smoke dope by life. I've got to go back to California. It's such a great song. And, uh, same thing happened. It's my favorite yeah. favorite Joni Mitchell song. And then of course there was the one the one hit wonder group who wrote the song about that they couldn't get their picture on the cover of the Rolling right. Stone. God bless them. Who were they? Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. I mean, certainly classic. Uh, it certainly helped me at a point. I mean, when it came out, like, if I go to rent a car, someone would say, oh, you're Mr. Rolling Stone. Oh, well, get me on the cover. I'll give you a car. <laughs> it, it's such a, I mean, I, you know, there, I, I can't tell you what the Rolling Stone meant to me. It is, you know, it was, it was the beginning. I can remember covers. I can remember interviews. I can remember, I mean, here's my favorite. I remember I, my, my McDonald's order, I'm a big McDonald's fan, by the way, in spite of being the spokesman for Atkins, I am, I will have a McDonald's from time to time. And my order was always the um, Big Mac until I read in the Rolling Stone that Bruce Springsteen is a quarter pounder guy. <laughs> and I forever changed my McDonald's. That's the kind of power the Rolling Stone had. Wow. Over the diet of America. That was the diet of a, of a, of a young, um, not as sophisticated Bruce Springsteen touring America and that amazing Annie cover of Bruce on the ice skates. Yeah. Did you see what Bruce said on my book about my book? What did he say? It says, if you were young, alone, and in the far lands of New Jersey, Rolling Stone was a dispatch from the front, carrying news of a bigger world and another life awaiting. Like a Rolling Stone is a touchingly honest memoir from a man who recorded and shaped our times and of a grand life well lived. It is wonderfully deep and rewarding reading. I loved it. It's so great. And that is right. You also, I think, have lived such a great life. I love people who live life well. I think it's an art. And, and, and by the way, you don't have to be rich, poor. I mean, some of the people who live their lives the best I've ever seen are people who have nothing in Europe. So it's not about having money. 
It's about having a point of view and celebrating the right things in life. Mm-hmm. I've always felt you've lived a great life. Uh, and, and that like, uh, it's something like if, if there's certain people coming up, if it was good enough for them, I knew it was great. You're on the list. Jimmy Buffett is another one. I think Jimmy Buffett lives the greatest life of anybody I know. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the, one of the things that we have in common and people is to live, to live a life so filled with music Mm. and rock and roll and the love of it and the, the joy it communicates and and kind of the hope, even the mission of rock and roll to make this place a better world, to make it nicer for everybody, to, to, to enjoy yourself, to make other people feel happy. I mean, to be a part of, of, of that spirit and then to be able to create it or move to it or live it to live the rock and roll life it's been just the greatest blessing i mean of all the things you could choose to do and it doesn't matter whether you have money or not have money i mean do you believe in the magic that could set you free as the love and spoonful spoonful saying and i was lucky to stumble into that early when i was in my late teens and just to 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 discover that to see the beatles and say that's a life that's what i want to be like that's I want to enjoy that. I want to be a part of that. You write about in the book about taking John and Yoko to see a hard day's life. I think that's an amazing part of the book. To, to see, we're seeing Let It Be. Let It Be, I'm sorry. The first, the, Let It Be was the, you know, really the first version of it was clearly indicating the Beatles were breaking up. And so he said he hadn't seen it before. We So we went to an empty theater with our wives uh, one afternoon and came out of that theater just, and we all got in a huddle and started crying it was so sad really that's amazing man that's a moment i bring you in the book i mean that's an amazing thing in history to to be there at this moment with john watching it for the first time we, we talked about um simon and garfunkel what is your take having had a front row seat obviously to the lennon mccartney dynamic well i mean I've been close to a, several of these partnerships, Simon Garfunkel, Paul and John, Mick and Keith, mm-hmm. among others. And they, they they shared similar dynamics. I mean, in the very first place, they're all relationships where you, you with an incredible dependency and mutuality, and they're tied to each other in ways that are more than brotherhood, more than marriage. There's money, there's professional. And they're tied to people they look at me. I'm tied to this person. I'm 30 years old. I met this person when I was 12 or 14 yeah. or 15. Maybe I don't like them anymore. Or maybe it's somebody I wouldn't be a friend with when I grew up. You know? But now I am now I live with the person all the time. And my income depends on it. So it creates an enor- enormous kind of strain and difficulty. And then when they come into stress from success or drugs or marriage outside, they can, they're very difficult to maintain. They're each different in that. On the one hand, with Paul and Artie, that there was one where Artie was basically dependent on Paul's talent as a songwriter. I mean, it was there's complete. There was no equality equivalency. Yep. In the Lennon McCartney thing, there was a great equivalency. They they were equal partners, and you know now they're stuck with each other. Are they really? Do, I, but they're also them, like Paul, are bursting with talent and want to go out and express it on their own by themselves without. You know, this other person is sharing the money, the glory, or the trouble of doing it. And Paul and Artie, there's there's the individual circumstance. One can annoy you to death and drive you crazy with his, oh, my voice wasn't good enough. Oh, record it. Give me another verse. 
and Mick and Keith, you know, they're still together because I think, you know, I mean, uh, you know, there's a kind of mutual dependency that exists there that they went each and tried as solo artists and they don't quite succeed on their own as solo artists. You know, Lennon McCartney. So it's just tough. How many times have you been married, Rob? Just as my, I'm still on my first. Well, see, you're the exception. I am. Not the rule. Here. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm 30 years in, Jan. Oh, God bless. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Mick, I think, is the most charismatic person I've ever met. You, I think you, above all people, will probably appreciate this. So Lorne Michaels invited me to a dinner, and it was like four or five other people, very, very intimate, and Mick was there. And I sat next to Mick. I'd never met him. And he was in particularly rare form. He was so charismatic. I was like, am I falling in love with Mick Jagger? Is that a possibility? He was so, I don't even know what. And I look, I, like you, I've met a lot of people. I've, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody like, like Mick. And when, when he puts the high beams on you, it's kind of irresistible. Mick has got that huge, big, toothy smile. That almost, and he has a little diamond action in, in one of the teeth. And it twinkles. And his whole face twinkles. Yeah. And he can just lay, he's so English, he can just lay it on you. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and actually, you know, look at you deeply in the eyes and, you know, it, it absolutely. I mean, you're one of many who's, you know, <laughs> been subject to that, to the charm, as you say, the high beams. Uh, and he is, and because of these magnetic, he's totally magnetic. I mean, of all the people that I've met over the years, I mean, he's the one that could, make me still the most nervous in a way, the little most. Now, there's other sides to Mick, you know, they're quite, quite very much the opposite. He'd also be one of the coldest, most chilly, frightening, not frightening, but intimidating people just trying, you know, make you feel the most uncomfortable you could possibly feel. I could see he has that. that. That skill and ability too. Which is also, by the way, which also makes the charm work because you know the bass note is, is lurking underneath mm -hmm. it. But, I, I mean, we known he, I've known him for many, many years. We met when I was 22 and he was 25. And uh, so we we spent many years together. We've worked closely. We've traveled. We're good personal friends as well as professional friends. And um, he, I think he's a, a really terrific guy. I mean, I think you've got to accept that there's many layers. There's some doors. There's some places he keeps off limits. but over a long period of time, he, he's been, he's very open. I mean, Mick is a musician, you know, and his fundamental, most he's a blues man, a musician, a singer, an entertainer, and and you can relate with him on that level very easily. But he's also, of course, one of the most widely, you know, uh, looked at, stared at guys in the world. He has to protect himself, and he, and he throws down a layer to protect himself. So I'm been sober now 30 plus years, and I had just gotten sober. Um, and found myself backstage at a Stones concert in Paris. And I believe it was Patty Hansen, I think at the time would have been, mm. said, Keith's wife. Yeah. Said, Hey, so after the show, why don't you come? Me and Keith are going to have a party at the, at the hotel room. And I had, I'll never forget it as long as I live. I think I had, I had six months sober. And I was like, well, this is really the moment. Keith Richards effectively just invited you to come party at the hotel. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And I didn't go. And 30 <laughs> years later, I'm still going. But I, I remember that was like 
the one regret. I'm like, couldn't I have just gotten sober six months later? Yes. Would it yeah. have been would it have been the worst thing to let me just go fucking have one party with Keith Richards for God's sakes? You know, I don't think he missed much. Uh, there's something that quote Jimmy Buffett, who mentioned before in the book, he said to me one time, he said, you know what? There's nothing worth saying after 2 a.m. Mm. There's nothing worth listening to. It might feel like it if you got the right drugs in you. The, the, but the next day, you learn nothing. No, you learn nothing. I got to ask you, because when I think about drugs, I, I got to ask you about Hunter Thompson, because he had the great, mm -hmm. you have a great quote of his in the book where he said, I need to do, do drugs because if I didn't have drugs, I would probably have the mind of an accountant. Yeah. Great line. I, a great line. I don't think that's strictly true. Of course I mean, it's not. Not true for anybody. It's it's one of the great lies. And mm -hmm. and yeah. and look, God rest him. I have no beef in it. But like that notion, frankly, has killed more fucking people. Mm -hmm. And I get kind of pissed. The notion that that it's no different than the tortured actor. It's the same. It's, yeah. it's the same bunch of bullshit. It's like that that I have to suffer for my art, that I had to be stoned for my art, that I'm playing a Coke addict, so I did a lot of, it's all, excuse me, fucking bullshit. And Hunter Thompson would have been as good, he would have been a better writer. Charles Bukowski would have been a better writer and they'd still be alive. All I know, uh, I mean, it it's, can certainly be a lot of fun to take drugs if you can keep it under control. All I know in my experience is that drugs and drink have destroyed more talent. Yep. Than I can think of. And I can't think of any talent that's really been enhanced by, except maybe the first stages of drinking and taking drugs before it's taken over you. It's fun. You get out of it. But I, I could I give you a list of people who, who and hunters among them, who whose talent, who, who talent left, was destroyed because they destroyed their own ability to concentrate, to think, the discipline that's necessary to do great work. They're just a muddled and a waste of fucking time. I mean, what I say in my book, I wrote right in my book. I'm very honest about drug use and uh, the amount of drugs I take when I think of them and, and in it and how much cocaine dominated the 80s, you know, in the late 70s. I mean, it was everywhere saying, you know, if I could take all that cocaine back, I would. It was a total waste of time. You know, totally did nothing but I mean, a waste of time and money. I wouldn't say that about pot and I wouldn't say that about LSD, but cocaine was terrible. It's and it is, you know, it's what I came up in. again. Like I, we all look to, we all have our heroes. And like I said, there's Rolling Stone. Well, I mean, you know, come on, man, there's you, there's Nicholson, there's, you know, there's all these in, and, and that was just baked in. It was it's like when it, it, I like hearing you say it. Cause it makes me think I'm, it makes me realize I'm no, no, I'm not crazy. It was everywhere. Not only was it everywhere. It's what people did. Yeah. You couldn't go anywhere without, I mean, in, in entertainment circles and among wealthy people, it was the language at the time. It was the coin of the realm, as you say. Coin of the realm. You know, anywhere you went, it was there. Somebody was turning over a plate and chopping up lines or somebody's offering you a hit. And then if you went somewhere and they didn't bring out immediately, you'd start hitting up people there saying, oh, yeah, I don't really know you, but do you have any blow on you? And so, and it was, it was degrading in the end. And, um. Uh, I, I just can't think of anything useful that came out of it. It's amazing that it wasn't known. I guess it had to run its course. I think it had to run its course. There's a lot of mythology and yes, you know, I mean, it's not unequivalent to the twenties, the roaring twenties when booze was everywhere. You know, it was, that was 
the star that time during Prohibition. Everybody was taking booze, the so-called jazz age. Looking for a sparkling clean bathroom without so much hassle? Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner is here to revolutionize your cleaning future. Just spray today, rinse tomorrow, and voila! Enjoy a sparkling clean shower and tub without any scrubbing. It's the secret to a hassle-free clean bathroom that many are discovering. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner has proven its effectiveness on shower glass, fixtures, tiles, and more, ensuring everything shines with minimal effort. This product has gained a loyal following thanks to its once-a-week application that makes it a standout in the cleaning aisle. Join the ranks of satisfied users who enjoy more me time and less clean time with Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner, available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. It's the perfect choice for anyone wanting to simplify their cleaning routine. Don't miss out on a chance to transform your bathroom cleaning with just one application a week. Pick up a bottle of Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner today and join the thousands who've already made the switch to Effortless Clean. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Rob Lowe. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high performance TVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience, and of course. It's an EV, so the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. I have a question for you. If you could have written or owned the rights to one song 
<laughs> what would it be? Because I have an answer and I think it's going to surprise you. I, I would probably choose yesterday or Margaritaville. Jan Wenner. Rob Lowe. You, sir, are a true genius because you know what it is? You know what mine is? Margaritaville. I don't think, I think it takes a very, I don't mean to like puff us both up here, but I think it takes a very sophisticated music and industry connoisseur to come up with Margaritaville. I really do. <laughs> but for sure, right? Well, you know, <laughs> depends what you want for a lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, but it's not just a lifestyle. It's, look, that that's doing Margaritaville a disservice, just that it's a cash cow. It is a, it me Margaritaville means as much to more people, I'm willing to argue, mm-hmm. than pick your highfalutin Dylan song. Well, Mar- Margaritaville is a, not just a, sta- a, a commercial success, it's a state of mind. I mean, look, I think Jimmy is a genius. I mean, skip this writing song. They have got mar- retirement homes called Margaritavilles now. They're sell- they, they're in Florida, and they're opening one at the other at the other. And if you were a parrot head, now you're 65. And you know what? You can be a parrot head for the rest of your life. You can go off and live in your retirement with other folks like you and go to the bar every night and have sundowners or do whatever. You can be on Team Margaritaville. For the- what a great retirement home thing. What a great growing old situation. I think it's wonderful. And I think next thing we ought to be seeing, like, Terrapin Station, the Grateful Deadland. You know, we had a, you know, if you're a deadhead, you can go. I was telling Brucey, I'd open, start opening retirement homes down the Jersey t- Turnpike. You know, oh my, welcome God. to Thunder Road. You know, <laughs> you, you talk to Patty about it. You're more likely to get somewhere. Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I love Bruce is my favorite. I, I, he, I, I can't. Wait. Have you heard the new, um, the the new yeah. album of standards of soul soul songs? It's fantastic! It's utterly fantastic. All of it, yeah. I love listening to it. For a couple of months now, I just every day I listen to it. I he's he's my guy. I mean, he's he's everybody's guy, and he's, he's just terrific. One of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. And certainly, as I say in the book, I, I've never seen somebody in my life enjoy themselves so much on stage to be having so much fun, and he he brings so much joy to you and, and feeling when you watch him on stage. It's it's, it's brilliant. And his, his his new album is fantastic. And his his book was uh, was a revelation to me because he was mm-hmm. so open about his struggles with depression mm-hmm. and and the the notion of like the mania actual as it turns out mm-hmm. of being on stage for three and a half hours is mm-hmm. well earned as mm-hmm. as the other side of the depression and mm-hmm. um one of the last one of the many times i've seen him at the shows and talked to him. I was talking about the show and he, I'll never forget. He just turned to me and he looked me right in the face and said, Rob, unless I'm out there doing that, I'm a waste of space. <laughs> or an accountant. And, and he <laughs> meant it. And I'm like, wow, that's heavy. Um, one of the other little things that's in the book that is amazing to me, by the way, not surprising in the least, but everybody's like going, Oh my God, can you believe I'm like, uh, hello, of course, when Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt were having an illicit affair when he was married to Jennifer Aniston, she called the photographer and said, by the way, we're going to be in some remote, literally like it was somewhere in Africa. In- West, a- West Africa. West Africa, in the middle of nowhere. 
and that you could get a picture of us there. And then she gets to play the, oh, I just can't believe how the word got out. Oh, I'm so surprised. Mm -hmm. She did it. Absolutely. She she called up our photographer up and said, this is a time when there was rumors that they were having an affair and he had left Jane Aniston, but they couldn't be confirmed. And she wanted to get it on the record. She wanted it out there. So she called her photographer, said, Brad and I will be at this place on this beach at such and such day, such a time. You take a picture of us there. They sent us the picture. We ran on the cover of Us Weekly with my headline saying, it's true. But she had had a history with Us Weekly of calling the photographers up and staging paparazzi uh, events and moments for that. You must have made your day. You must have been on the cover of Us Weekly several times. Um, I will tell you that when you, for, and I, I guess I should thank you, is um, when Us was a, when you first bought it, before um, Fuller took over and did the, uh, um, yeah, right? I mean, when, when, when we were, we were a monthly for long, yes, the many mo- years, and weren't on the news and was just gossipy and didn't have that news. When it was, that was the era I was on the, co- I swear to God, I think I was on the cover every other month because there were multiple people on the covers and inevitably mm-hmm. I had my little slot. Um, mm-hmm. but the notion, I just love that, that of course there are people out there who are willing to do that, to the, the Angelina Jolie move. And, and my favorite is when they play the blushing bride mm-hmm. and meanwhile, calling the paparazzi to blow mm-hmm. up a marriage. It's just, it's the best. It's, it's Hollywood at its finest. And people are shocked. I tell you, shocked. They're just shocked. Well, you know, it's one of my pet peeves is that the people who complain the most about being on the cover of this magazine and other magazines are people who thrive on that. Thank you, John Winner. I'm just telling you, you're, you're a genius. The man, you, you speak the truth. You're a truth teller. Well, they're, they're, they, they want to be on the cover. Otherwise, they don't have to go to every public event there is. I mean, there's plenty of ways not to be on the cover of a gossip magazine. Just don't go in those places or live a little more modestly. It's not much of a price to pay the level of fortune and good fortune that one has in one's life. I mean, yes, it's inconvenient. It's irritating. But so what? Look what else you got. You got a Lamborghini. I, I mean, I want to say if the full of shitness of, of uh-huh. certain celebrities, man, it just blows my mind. Shitfulness is what you're full of shit. shitness. The, full of shitness. That's it. That's it. Fullness of shit. The fullness of shit. It 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 just like I remember when Cheryl and I got married, and you know I, I've been around now a long time, so I go through various levels of being famous. Like mm-hmm. when you're, it, it's no different than anybody. You you go in times you're super famous, and then maybe you're you're not quite as famous, and you're famous again, and it just goes back and forth. So I, I've I've had where it. Where are you now? On that, where where are you right now on the scale? Honestly, Semi famous. Yeah, I think Half I'm still. Famous. I think I'm. I, Jan, I think I'm still famous. Yeah, I think so too. I Absolutely. think. Um, but I remember we wanted to get married and have nobody know about it. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It wasn't that hard. Yeah. And I was super famous. Put so, town. so the people who complain about it, I just go move, live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or do something else, or don't go here, or don't go. I just blow, just unreal. Just came out quietly, like Sean and Madonna. I mean, if you want to call attention to yourself, <laughs> wasn't that amazing? Yeah, that was an amazing one. Um, Cameron Crow, almost famous. Uh, yeah, you know your relationship with Cameron Crow. You discovered him. He was a cherubic. How old was he actually when, when Cameron started writing for the Rolling Stone? Fifteen years old. Come on. Poss- Possibly 16. I'm, 
it, I, he was certainly still in high school because we had to get a note from his mother to get him. I had to get give him a note to his mother, get him out of school so he could go on the road with, I don't know, Deep Purple or somebody or other. And and of course, the group's going, why are you sending this kid out? But Cam was so smart and so charming. And, and his movie, Almost Famous, is is really a true story about what it was like in those days when a Rolling Stone reporter would go out on the road, live with the band for a while, and come back and write a really intimate, careful, thoughtful, meaningful story. And it really brought you there without being scandalous, without making a big deal out of the drugs or the excesses or whatever, you know, and, and protecting individuals' privacy, as well as bringing you backstage and into their lot. But Cameron was the most charming high school kid, you know, and he just quickly, we started rising up, doing cover stories for us, doing serious stories, doing our finally breaking through little Led Zeppelin and doing a story on them and the Eagles and stuff like that. And as we talk now, they're getting prepared to open Almost Famous on Broadway as a play. Oh, wow. And their previews have already gotten very good reviews, but it opens, I think, in, in two weeks. And I remain close to Cameron. We talk all the time. I love him. I love his work. Does does criticism of anything mean anything to anybody anymore? I think so. I think it depends on where it comes from, you know, and what it says. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of meaningful criticism to be written, you know, particularly say what I try to do is have Rolling Stone be about be criticism of the music itself and the production of the music, the songwriting, all the, those technical aspects that go into it. Yes. And, um, the literary aspects, but you know, too often, too much of the criticism when we started and throughout the years has been more about what the band, what the album cover looks like, or what the band's wearing, or mm. some kind of sociological personality analysis. Because the writers may not know enough about music to write about the music itself. So that's why I kicked out a lot of writers who's like Lester Bangs out of Rolling Stone because they were writing these were always nasty because it's easy to write something nasty reviews really torching some valid artist's hard work without giving it a fair hearing, even if it was weak work, without giving it a fair hearing of, of its work itself. And it was not honest and fair to the readers who was counting us to make an honest judgment and recommending it or to the artist who was looking to get a, a critical evaluation, understanding, nor to the record business, which we were in business with then. And so I tried my best to make the, and the rockerism was a new field. Um, as honest and fair and about the music as possible. I couldn't do that all the time, but we did it a lot. Oh, you I did. Think- I mean, I, you're, uh, this is why I bring it up, because it meant something. When Rolling Stone said something was good, it meant something. And the way in which it was said, you knew, was not, an, was not agenda-driven in, right. in, in any way. And, and I, I guess what I, it, but, and yet there were famously, um, and you even mentioned in the book, there there were famous groups that never cracked the Rolling Stone. Queen? Queen. We didn't really give Queen as fair due, I don't think, yeah. Um, who else would be on the list of... I think it's really Queen more than else. I mean, at the very beginning, we gave Led Zeppelin bad reviews, and which is why they were really pissed off mm-hmm. at us. And I think, I'm sure there's some others, you know, and I'm sure there's, and there's many reviews where we were probably mistaken. You know, I'm wrong. I mean, not giving Led Zeppelin's fair due. Right. Uh, but there's many where we were totally right on. I mean, most were totally right on. But by like we we were we we caught everything pretty much on time. And there's a little attitude towards maybe more popular views, a little groups, a little critical snobbery. 
Yeah. Um, I suppose that's to be expected. We can't be perfect, but we were right at least 98% of the time. Oh, I, I think possibly 98, 99%. Um, all time favorite Rolling Stone cover for you, I'm guessing, is John and Yoko. Yeah. I mean, in terms of beautiful piece of photography and, and a powerful, powerful moment, that, that picture that Annie took of them yeah. just before he was killed, uh, of him naked lying in the bed, uh, hang, huddling over and hanging onto, embracing a fully clothed Yoko really comes to stand for that moment in time, that very sad, powerful moment of his death. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a haunting, beautiful, almost biblical image. Yeah. It's a great one. Um, Annie Leibovitz is just an amazing, amazing. Well, there will, there will never be another Rolling Stone. Um, there's not, never going to be another one of you. By the way, when are we going to ski together? My, my good friend. Um, well, I've gotten, I, here's the other thing I liked about your book. You say you're a better skier now than you ever were, and I get it. I feel the yeah. same. Feels yeah. totally the same. It's definitely a sport. You can get better and better and better. And it's been my my life. I'm same. And you, and I also appreciate in your book that moment where you're skiing with your son. Oh yeah. And I love that whole thing of that you say about letting people choose the course of choose the path for the day of skiing. It's so true. Uh -huh. And I've never heard yeah. anybody articulate. I've never heard anyone articulate that. And it's so true. I wrote, I wrote a lot about skiing and then the end the editor said, yeah, enough was enough, you know, because I was <laughs> writing about every season and what differentiated every season, but I wanted to name check all the guys. Yeah. Oh, you I got to. Skiing. And uh, so I named it, and including Stark, who's now in jail. You know, who's now in state prison, right? Amazing. But, uh, the crowd was rough. <laughs> Jan, thank you, brother. Oh, man, I'm buzzing from that one. That was so exciting. I, I love when I, get, when I get to have my heroes on the show. I really, I really, really do. And the notion that, that I've got to a place where I can have a relationship with my heroes, is it, it blows my mind. That's the, I think that's the, the point which keeps me going is I'm still a fan, you know? I'm a fan. I'm still the 15-year-old kid running out to get the Rolling Stone. Um, anyway, so uh, thank you, Jan. You're the best, and I will see you on the ski slopes. All right. You got questions? I got answers. Let's hit the lowdown line. Hello. You've reached literally in our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323 570 Four five five one. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hey Rob, it's Amy from Indiana. Love the podcast. I was just wondering if you would be willing to share a day in the life, um, a typical day in the life um, that you would have, where you're able to fit in all these things that you fit in, like fitness, uh, reading, TV, work, family time. Um, just would love to hear how you balance it off. Thanks a lot. Bye. Oh, thank you. Um, that's a cool question. There's kind of, there's kind of two things. There's a, there's the, uh, a day where it's, where it's, I'm free and I, and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not working. And then there are the days when I'm working. So on, on the work days, I probably have to get up around five fifteen. I get driven happily to work. I get in the car. I put on my, uh, noise canceling headphones I put my eye mask on and I get an extra sometimes hour, hour and a half of sleep because it's a very long commute from where I live to where I'm shooting. 
Um, I get out of the car. Somebody hands me a, uh, three shots of espresso. I go immediately to a rehearsal of 200 people sitting around and waiting to start work. Um, I've been a, I've literally woken up and within 20 seconds I'm rehearsing a plane crash on a 911 Lone Star or something insane or doing a three-page dialogue scene. Then I go uh, and uh, get some makeup and hair done and I'm utterly transformed into television's Rob Lowe. And then we'll shoot, uh, you know, you always shoot 12 hours um, when, you, when you're making movies or TV, often more, but never less. And then I will, um, I won't make that big drive. I'll, I'll stay in LA. Um, my boys live there and uh, I crash with them and repeat. And then at night, um, I'll come home. I'll, um, I might smoke a cigar. Um, I might work out if I'm feeling really good and to bed super early. Um, and then, um, when I'm free, that's fun. That's fun. When I'm free, I sleep in and I love to sleep. I love to sleep. It's my favorite thing in the world. I want to sleep, 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 sleep. Then I wake up, I'll work out. Um, and that's, you know, surf or swim or lift weights or do something and then eat. And, um, I'm outside all day long. I'll, I'll, I'll go on a walk. I'll play with the dogs. Uh, maybe I'll play some golf, but I'm outside all day long. It's like I'm 12 years old living in Ohio again. I hate being inside. Um, and, you know, maybe then a beach walk with my wife, some alone time with Cheryl and um, playing with the dogs, maybe a, a movie, but I'm a total hermit. I don't like going out. You know, I'm around so many people at work and I love them all, but, but when I'm not at work, I want to just chill and recharge. So I, I'm, I, I'm not at parties. I'm not going to premieres. I'm not going to even to restaurants. I like to be alone. And that's it. That's uh that's, that's a, lot, a day in the life of, of, of me. There's other stuff, stuff I do for recovery, therapy, you know, stuff like that. But that's, those are the broad strokes. Thanks for the question. And my lovely listeners, I will see you next week. Don't forget to download the, uh, the entire um, podcast. And also send a link. If you like this, send a link to somebody you think might appreciate it. Um, that would be great. Let's bring more people into the, into the fold. All right. See you next time. God bless you. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced by me, Rob Schulte, with help from associate producer Sarah Bagar. Our research is done by Alyssa Grawl. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. All of the music on this podcast was composed by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher.